Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Monday, December 7th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Britain's negotiations with the EU were on a knife edge Sunday night. Scientists are pushing the EU to stick to climate science as they draw up rules on sustainable finance, and a COVID-19 vaccine will be available for private purchase in India. Plus, there's always a lot of focus on how the UK will survive after Brexit, but today we'll take a look at how the EU will fare without Britain. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Brexit negotiations are far from over, and deep divisions still remain. Irish Prime Minister Mikhail Martin told the broadcaster RTE on Sunday Britain's trade talks with the EU were on a knife edge. My gut instinct is that it's 50-50 right now, uh, and I don't think one can be overly optimistic about a resolution emerging. The main issues are still there. The big one is the so-called level playing field, the rules governing future competition between the EU and the UK. But there's also been no compromise over EU fishing rights. Britain suggested that EU fishermen can have three years to operate in UK waters. The EU wants 10 years. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson will speak with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to take the temperature of negotiations this morning. Meanwhile, EU Chief Negotiator Michel Barnier will brief ambassadors from the 27 EU member states. Moving beyond trade talks for a minute, there's been a lot of attention on whether Britain can thrive outside the European Union. But what if we turn this around and ask how the EU is faring without the UK? DFT's Brexit editor David Bond poses this question and more to our Brussels bureau chief, Sam Fleming. So Sam, the UK and Brexit have of course been taking up a lot of time in European capitals. With the end now in sight, what difference has the Brits' absence made from policymaking in Brussels? Let's perhaps first look at the budget. In the past, this has tended to be an area where Britain stood for restraint. How has the UK's departure affected this debate? Yes, you're right. I mean, the UK was always a voice of restraint uh, right back to 1984 and the Fontainebleau summit when Maggie Thatcher said she wanted her money back and got the rebate in the recent budget, which was agreed at a leader's level in July. Uh, That was a case, I think, where had the UK still been a member, speculation, obviously, but given past behaviour, it would probably not have wanted to participate in a massive 1.8 trillion euro budget far larger than any normal budget that we've seen in European Union history, and so might have sought to block that budget. So arguably, the budgetary room for manoeuvre that the European Union has had, in recent months at least, has been helped by the fact that the UK wasn't a restraining influence as it has been in the past. Are there some other areas of policymaking where Britain's contribution has been particularly notable in the past, for example, on state aid and the rule of law? Yeah, I think we cannot underestimate how influential the UK has been. It just really struck me speaking to officials who've been around town for a long time, just how highly they rated, actually, UK officials' ability to uh, get deals done, to ensure legislation got through in ways which were helpful, uh, in particular for the UK, but also also for other countries which had a similar philosophy to the UK. And that would be one which believes in free markets, which is not in favour of protectionism, and as you mentioned, is not a big fan uh, of huge dollops of public money being poured into companies. And state aid is one area where you saw that British influence for years. The UK obviously set against, in that regard, France, which has been more uh, a believer in interventionism. 
are there countries sort of wandering around Brussels slightly lost, sort of British orphans, if you like, who have lost their kindred spirit in debates and policy-making decisions in Brussels? I think there was certainly a view that a number of countries would feel a little bit of a sense of loss. I mean, if you think of the EU as traditionally having been a three-legged stool with Germany, France, and the UK as the three major powers driving policymaking, then there would be a cluster of smaller economies around the UK and which definitely were worried about how they would have to operate in Brussels. I mean, the reality is that countries adapt and they form new alliances. We now have the Frugal Four group of Northern European countries, which have tended to push against excessive budgetary ambition. But I think certainly uh, that there were some traditional allies which felt Britain's absence particularly acutely, at least uh, earlier on in this process. Sam, on financial regulation, what sort of role has the UK played there, do you think? Well, a huge, obviously a huge uh, role on financial regulation. The UK uh, holds the biggest European financial market in the city of London, and it has um, been one of the prime movers in trying to push for integration of the single market when it comes to the financial side of it. The situation now is very, very different, clearly. We're, We're now seeing the consequences of the UK being left out in the cold when it comes to the big decisions being made about European financial services. The EU is trying to pull regulatory levers to get some areas of activity moved into European financial capitals. And the UK financial services sector is waiting on these equivalence decisions, which would allow activities to continue in the city of London. But there's no guarantee that the UK and the city will get those. And it's very much contingent on what happens in the broader frame of the dialogue. So from being in the driving seat when it came to financial services, the UK is now more in the passenger seat and an onlooker, watching somewhat worriedly as developments continue in Brussels. Sam Fleming, the FT's Brussels Bureau Chief, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Climate science. Scientists say climate science should be a main factor when the EU draws up its rules on sustainable finance. A group of more than 120 scientists from 27 countries signed a letter to Brussels. They're concerned that the rules don't require companies to reduce carbon emissions to net zero by 2050. The point that they're making is that if companies don't have this requirement to reduce carbon emissions over the next 30 years, how is the EU going to do it? Brussels has pledged to reduce emissions to net zero by 2050. What's more, the scientists say that the omission risks putting European countries behind when it comes to their global goals under the Paris Climate Agreement. Scientists point out that the sustainable finance rules would be a good place to outline these requirements for companies. The EU has hailed the rules as the world's first classification system for markets and investors on what counts as green investment. The draft of these rules is entering a period of public consultation that ends on December 18th. The rules are due to come into full force starting in 2022. And in India, doses of a coronavirus vaccine will be available for purchase as soon as March. This vaccine we're talking about here was developed by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. And the world's largest vaccine maker, Serum Institute of India, says the shot will make its way onto the private market. Serum's chief executive told the FT that it's already manufactured 40 million doses. And once the vaccine is approved for use, Serum will first supply the Indian government, but then expects to sell between 20 million and 30 million doses to private facilities. 
But there are some concerns about vaccines on the private market. Mainly, it increases the chances of a secondary market. In this scenario, locals or even foreign visitors could pay for a vaccination if they're not eligible to get a shot under their own government's plan. Serum expects the AstraZeneca vaccine will sell for about $8 in India's private market. The price would be about $3 per dose for the Indian government. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.